0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have two guests today, uh, Susan Stevenson, Executive Director, and uh, Craig McCannon, uh, Director at Novartis. N-O-V-A-R-T-I-F. Novartis is a large, well-established company that is uh, involved a lot of uh, cell therapies, uh, gene editing, et cetera. We get a lot to cover. So uh, welcome, Susan and Craig. How are you? Great, Richard. How are you? Thank you. Fine, Richard. Yeah. Thanks. Great. Well, if you guys can tell me, um, Novartis, I'm sure covers many areas. Uh, can you give a brief overview of the company and the different uh, initiatives that are going on right now? And then we'll we'll dive into a couple and get more details.
1: Great. Uh, I'll take that question. So, uh, as you know, Novartis is a a global healthcare company uh, based in Switzerland uh, that provides healthcare solutions to address the needs of patients and societies around the world. Uh, We use science-based innovations, and we work to address some of society's most challenging healthcare issues. Uh, Our portfolio includes innovative pharmaceuticals, uh, oncology medicines, generics, and biosimilars, as well as eye care devices. Craig and I are in the research uh, arm of the company uh, called the Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research, uh, which is responsible for leading early drug discovery and early R&D for Novartis. Uh, We embrace multiple collaborations across disciplines uh, with uh, both biotech companies as well as academic partnerships in order to develop innovative medicines and advance uh, uh, exciting science to to patients. Uh, Within NIBR, we have about 6,000 associates uh, dedicated to drug discovery. Uh, We focus on different disease areas uh, ranging from oncology, cardiometabolic, respiratory, neuroscience, immunology, dermatology, and ophthalmology. Now, that finally gets us down to the area that Craig and I have been working in for many years, and that is the development of cell and gene therapies. Uh, This is a really exciting time for cell and gene therapy within Novartis, as well as in the entire field. Uh, Novartis uh, and NIBR have made this a a strategic priority because of the potential to develop uh, transformative medicines for a range of diseases. And so, Uh, I head up the Cell and Gene Therapy Initiative within uh, uh, Novartis, which helps to coordinate and and, uh, execute a variety of different gene therapy and cell therapy programs for uh, multiple diseases. So I'll stop there. Okay.
0: Very good. Uh, Within the world of uh, cell and gene therapies, what are some examples of those that are, are recent that Maybe have gotten through clinical trials that people are now going to start seeing when they uh, need medical medical care, or are they too early yet and they're still in clinical trials?
1: No, Novartis has had a, a fantastic example. Uh, the first approved uh, ex vivo autologous T cell therapy for uh, B cell lymphoma. Uh, the approved uh, product is called Kimraya, which was approved in the summer of last year, 2017. That uh, developed. Uh, since 2012, in partnership with Carl June at the University of Pennsylvania. And so that is a curative therapy uh, for B cell lymphoma. So that's a really exciting example and it's helped establish all of our internal infrastructure for development of cell based therapies that we're now uh, applying to other areas uh, where we're developing cell therapies.
0: So, okay, you used the, uh, just to clarify, as you said, autologous, meaning the person's own cells. Ex vivo, so I guess they're cultured outside the body, um, and it's a t-, t cell therapy. So, can yeah. you talk a little bit about the mechanics of what happens in that therapy? You'll culture someone's cells, uh, you'll make more of them outside the body. How will you mm-hmm. alter them, and then how will you reintroduce them, and what will that do to combat the lymphoma? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so gene therapy in general can be divided into two ways to treat the patient, a one in an ex vivo mode where, as you just described, we take the cells out of the patient, modify them. In the in the example of the CAR T program, uh, we use a lentiviral vector to transduce the isolated T cells to introduce permanently in those cells cells. Uh, an antibody construct that allows those T cells to be targeted to the tumor type. In this case, it's, a, it's an antibody against CD19, which targets the B cell lymphoma. Those modified cells are grown in culture after they've, been, uh, after they've been exposed to the lentiviral construct and then return back to the patient. And then those patients home to the tumor cells and the patients to destroy them. Uh, and so that's an example of an ex vivo Uh, Cell therapy, again, autologous therapy, meaning the patient's own cells are modified and put back. The other way that we could introduce genes into patients is using uh, viral-based delivery systems where they're injected directly into the patient. And uh, there we have uh, uh, two actually ongoing clinical studies, one using an adenoviral vector, which is injected into the ear, taking advantage of a local delivery setting. The second example was directly injected into the back of the eye uh, to go out to restore and deliver a functional copy of a gene that's mutated in an inherited retinopathy situation. And so those are three three Novartis programs. Uh, uh, the Kimraya example is approved and it's on the market and it's being sold. The, uh, the, the ear and the eye programs are just in early clinical development. In fact, we've just started the uh, – the first uh, uh ophthalmology clinical study this year the the ear clinical study has been going on for uh, a few years now and, and we're learning a lot from that initial clinical experience but those going back to in vivo versus ex vivo those are some some examples of of actual active Novartis programs ongoing
0: yeah, it's amazing that you can have a therapy like that wow um and there's millions of things to focus on so how do people how do you guys determine? where the focuses are Novartis, there's so many diseases, so many things to work on.
1: Well, I I think that one, of course, uh, greatest medical need, uh, no available pharmaceutical or other ways to approach the disease. Uh, Cell and gene therapy uh, is, uh, uh, I think, more work up front uh, because of it's a different delivery system, a different modality, but in the end uh given that it, it's a single administration potential for curative therapies, it's worth the upfront investment and so we look at all possible ways that we could and diseases where we can apply and develop gene therapy and and we have a uh we go through this decision tree uh and and we select those indications where uh you know we we think we will have the biggest clinical benefit and uh you know restoring blindness is one restoring hearing is the other there are no pharmaceutical interventions available curing cancer in the case of B cell lymphoma is another uh Novartis just recently acquired Avexis and developing an in vivo uh gene therapy to go after a genetic neurodevelopmental disease uh, disorder spinal, spinal muscular atrophy or SMA and the clinical data that they're uh showing is just amazing i mean these these children should not be living past the age of one or two and and they have gotten significant survival benefit and and that robust clinical data uh was the basis of Novartis being interested in the acquisition of, of Vexis this year and so uh another example of a of a uh transformative medicine that hopefully uh will uh be broadly available next year if if approved. And so that's where the team is now is interacting and, and trying to submit the necessary documentation for approval.
0: So what's, what's been your experience um, in this field? Has it been a slow accumulation of therapies and results or has there been a sudden resurgence or uh, a sudden breakthrough in the past few years that allows these therapies to happen?
1: Cell and gene therapy has been the field, I think, started back in 1989, 1990. The first gene therapy study was in September 1990. I actually was at uh, uh, the company that, that did that first. It was a study. It was an ex vivo modified hematopoietic uh, stem cell therapy going after a condition called uh, severe combined immunodeficiency disorder. And and again, it was a gene replacement approach with autologous therapies uh, and uh, using a, a virus to deliver the gene back into stem cells and delivering those modified cells back into the patient. That therapy just got approved in 2016, and and it's called the str- mm-hmm. Uh And so it has taken a long time, and I think uh, 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 it's because of the novelty of the technology, the you know, under- wanting to understand the. Uh, it, this, the efficacy, but, but very importantly, safety, and it's just taken time. There were some setbacks in the entire field in the late 90s, uh, and, uh, uh, and I think that the whole field had to p- take a pause. And, and now uh, that we've uh, understood the delivery platforms a bit better, and we've understand, we understand better their limitations, we're applying them now in settings where they have a better chance of success, For example, in local administration to the back of the eye or into the ear, we're not thinking that we're going to cure everything. And so there's some lessons learned along the way. And I think now, uh, with three new approvals last year in the field with Kimraya and Yescarta and Luxterna, now you're going to be seeing more of these gene therapy medicines. uh, coming forward and being approved, and it's just a really exciting time now. It has taken a ha- has taken a while to get here, uh, but but now I think we're applying and trying to develop gene therapy in, in more appropriate ways.
2: Somewhat ironically, both Sue and I, both Sue and I have been in this field for well over 20 years. Mm -hmm. Sue worked previously at um, a company, a Novartis company called GTI, Genetic Therapy Incorporated down in Maryland. Um, In the mid-90s and late 90s, I was at the University of Pennsylvania uh, affiliated with the Institute for Human Gene Therapy and then at a company called Onyx Pharmaceuticals, which was also developing um, adenoviral um, approaches for, um, for, for tumor therapeutics. And it was really, I think, some of the early setbacks which put the field on hold for probably around 10 or so years before it took um, a series of advances in technologies. I think there was a clearer um, and potentially more conservative regulatory path. Um, and now what we're starting to see is a resurgence in this field. So in some ways, it's kind of coming full circle on, on uh, things that we were involved in many years ago and always felt had the potential to be transformative in medicine.
0: Okay. That's what I wanted to ask. There's um, a few, well, at least a few companies out there. Some of them say, uh, you know, bank your stem cells um, for future therapies. Uh, There's places where you can uh, bank, I guess, placental blood, you know, cord blood, things like that, stem cells. What's your opinion of um, doing something like that in the hopes that in the next, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 years that your own stem cells will be available for a therapy for you? Do you think it's needed? Do you think... uh, I mean what, is, what are your thoughts around that those kind of therapies?
2: Well, currently here at Novartis, we're not really engaged in any efforts around around stem cell, true stem cell-based therapies. Um, there are other types of stem cells in in the body which have the ability to regenerate various different compartments. For example, hematopoietic stem cells are a stem cell type that can be used to regenerate the entire hematopoietic system. Um, in terms of the the, the actual stem cells that could recreate um, all of the cells of the human body. I think the field is still a, a, a bit mixed around the, the, the opinions on that. Um, there have been, I think, some um, some efforts to curb the use of, of editing and therapies in stem cells recently. Um, so I think the field has to be very cautious when it comes to anything where stem cells, where true pluripotent stem cells are involved
1: and when we develop autologous therapies we're using adult uh hematopoietic stem cells uh uh and we try to modify those cells uh and then we uh we we then graft them back in the body again same for t cells it's adult t cells and so uh we're not developing any therapies or programs with uh germline germline or placental or saving cells uh yeah all adult systems.
0: All right. So uh, we we talked about the cell and gene therapies. I wanted to ask uh, a bit about CRISPR. From what I understand, uh, bacteria use CRISPR It's a mechanism that bacteria will use to modify their own genetics to uh, you know fight off disease, et cetera. Um, can you tell the audience what is CRISPR? How does it work? It's a, a you know a new buzzword sure. um, in science, and well, you know what kind of work is being done by Novartis.
2: Sure. So uh, it is a new buzzword, but in fact, the term CRISPR has been around for for quite a while, since the early 2000s. Um, It stands for clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. I know that's a mouthful. Um, But really, as you mentioned, it was identified first in bacteria. as kind of an interesting observation that bacterial genomes had these repetitive sequences within the genomes, and it was later identified that these repetitive sequences actually had similarity to the genomes of various viruses that infect bacteria. And so, what what bore out over the next 10 or so years was that this served as a kind of a primitive immune system for bacteria um, that allowed them to recognize foreign DNA that were was coming in from an invading virus and to chop it up into little tiny pieces. Um, A significant amount of effort went into this. Ultimately, this was determined to be a potential way of programming genome editing, that is the induction of of, uh, double-stranded breaks in DNA, in um, other types of systems. Um, What's borne out now over time is that this is a very flexible system that allows us to induce double-stranded breaks into virtually any genome To do so with a a relatively high degree of specificity and efficiency. Um, And at Novartis, we were very early adopters of this technology in 2012, 2013, when some of the first papers were published demonstrating the utility of this technology as a potential genome editing strategy. um, We've invested a significant amount of resources in understanding the technology and um, being able to utilize this technology for both basic research as well, potentially,
0: as a therapeutic modality. So what kind of um, therapies are coming out of this? What, what's being worked on that you can disclose? Um, you know, What are the goals of some of the therapies right now?
1: We're developing CRISPR-based therapies for uh, uh, our lead indication is, again, an ex vivo-modified autologous cell therapy for sickle cell disease. Uh, in that we take hematopoietic stem cells from sickle cell patients, or at least this will be our plan when we get there, uh, to gene edit them with CRISPR-Cas9, and then to uh, re-infuse them back into the conditioned patient. And that uh, those modified hematopoietic stem cells will repopulate the hematopoietic system and then produce red blood cells, which have uh, a different form of of globin protein in the red cells that prevents the sickling of those cells and hopefully will be long term and there prevent the uh, complications of sickle cell disease due to the sickling of the cells. And so uh, we're in collaboration with Intellia Therapeutics and uh, working closely with them to identify. Uh, uh, guide RNA molecules which target the region of the genome that uh, uh, will have the biology and will upregulate this alternative form of, of globin protein. Uh, and uh, we're in the middle of preclinical evaluation right now on our way to the clinic. And so this is one example of where we're developing therapeutics using the CRISPR-Cas9 uh, 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 technology.
0: Well, because of CRISPR-Cas9 and how it works, can it ever be used in vivo, or it always has to be done outside the body in a controlled, safe environment?
2: Yeah. In in theory, the technology can be used for in vivo delivery as well. Um, We have opted to focus initially on these ex vivo cell therapies so that we can provide as much of a quality control over the final therapeutic product, which is the gene-modified cells. Um, to really be um, certain that we have a, a favorable safety profile of these cells prior to being readministered back into a patient. Um, there are several companies that have active programs around in vivo delivery of the components of the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Um, so we're very excited to, to see how some of those in vivo strategies evolve over the, the, the coming year to, to several years
0: is there um well is there a trade off between in vivo and ex vivo is there a reason you'd want to do in vivo or is it always cleaner and simpler to just do stuff ex vivo and reintroduce
2: well there are certain therapeutic indications where ex vivo really isn't an option if you have a disease indication like in this case CAR T therapy where you're treating a tumor you have the the, I'll call it the luxury, the ability to actually isolate a patient's T cells, genetically modify them, and then readminister them back to the patient. The same can be said for the hematopoietic stem cell therapy that Sue just mentioned. Other diseases are not as amenable to an, an ex vivo approach to genetically modify the cells. So, for example, in, in some of the retinopathies, um, one would actually need to perform the, the gene editing events in the retinal pigment epithelial cells in the eye in order to see a therapeutic benefit, there isn't a strategy where those cells can be cultured ex vivo and then re-delivered. So it really are the specifics of the disease indication Mm -hmm. that determine whether or not an ex vivo strategy is even possible.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And I guess um, in certain circumstances, you may need to be highly specific, both where in the body and what type of cells. Other circumstances, maybe it's more generic and it can be... uh, you know, can happen. Maybe you can inject something, and the modified cells can travel to the proper site. So I guess it obviously depends on the therapy, but that's both right. techniques need to be used.
2: Yeah, that's right. It depends on the therapy, and it it depends on the the method by which you're delivering the particular cargos to to given cells. So uh, there have been a lot of excitement in recent years with AAV vectors. Um, AAV vectors do have the ability, in some circumstances, to to um, transduce Certain cell populations, but it's it's not ex- exquisitely specific. Um, in, so the the Avexis, um, um, SMA therapeutic that Sue was mentioning, um, this is one which is based on in a in a, a an AAV serotype that happens to have a very high efficiency of transducing cells of of the 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 brain and and motor neurons and that's one of the reasons why it's an effective therapy
0: okay what um how do you see this field evolving over the next few years do you see an explosion of of uh, new therapies or is it still going to be chugging along and there's still a ton more to figure out before we can get a lot more therapies out there what's your overall perspective
1: well i you know I go back to earlier this summer, the FDA commissioner was interviewed, and he actually cited that he expects uh, by 2022 that there would be 40 new approved gene therapy medicines on the market. He was citing an MIT study that looked at the ClinPharm pipeline from last year of all the programs that are in preclinical development and all the ones that are in the FDA under review as part of investigational new drug applications and put on a certain metric as to success rate and attrition of the total and how they progress through the different phases of clinical development. And that's where he came up with this number of 40 new gene therapy medicines by 2022. So that's a really exciting for the entire field. And and uh, uh, so he's also worked towards, he is working towards uh, uh, putting in accelerated programs to help with accelerated reviews for sponsors and teams to take advantage of because they see that gene and cell therapies are becoming a reality and there will be more on the market. And, and in fact, that's the excitement within Novartis and, and why we are making this a strategic growth area across multiple disease areas. So it, I think it's a very exciting time right now.
0: Yeah, no, that sounds like it. I, I'm I'm sure your ears are more finely tuned than mine. I'm sure you hear all the time of people having you know, various diseases, and there's no therapies available and then passing away. And so I'm sure you, everyone feels the urgency over there to work as fast as they can to get therapies out there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, absolutely. So very good. So um, yeah, we're, we're just about out of time. Uh, what's the best way for listeners to find out more about what Novartis is working on and to uh, you know to reach out and uh, you know ask questions?
2: So there is a wealth of information on Novartis's public um, internet site, novartis.com. Um, we're also very active in social media, especially Twitter. So I would encourage people to follow Novartis on, on Twitter. Um, we are very active in, in giving updates around some of the, the, the new areas that we're investigating. And our, our global head of research, Dr. James Bradner, um, formerly from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, is a very active um, contributor to Twitter. And I would encourage people to follow uh, Jay Bradner's Twitter feed. Well, that's great. Well, Susan and Craig, thank
0: you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, Thank you.